the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. It is every bit of that. And on some days, a little bit more. Good morning. Eight minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, and we're underway on this Thursday, the 24th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Thanks for being with us. we got three hours of fun and frivolity, action-packed education and entertainment all going on at the same time today. So we've got, uh, we've got a good program lined up for you, a lot of an important program. We're going to talk about the confirmation hearings a little bit today. I've, I've kind of refrained from doing so over the course of the, the last three days. Katanji Brown-Jackson started her confirmation hearings for her nomination to the Supreme Court on Monday. Um, Three days in now, today would be day four. Um, It has been completely and wholly focused on her record as a judge. Nothing about her high school proclivities, nothing about anything she may have written on Twitter 20 years ago, well, 10, 15 years ago, however long it's been. No character assassinations the way the left did against Brett Kavanaugh, against Neil Gorsuch, even against Amy Coney Barrett. None of the histrionics, none of the unfair character attacks just to try to stop a Trump appointee. All of the questions have been about her record as a judge. And three days in, going into day number four right now, what has been the response? You racists! Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, Tom Cotton, 
John Kennedy, Lindsey Graham, all of these Republicans daring to question the judicial record and the judicial temperament, which is exactly what the Supreme Court, or excuse me, what the Senate is supposed to do when asked to give advice and consent on the nomination of a Supreme Court justice. All they're doing is examining her record, asking her about that record, asking her why this decision was made, asking why that decision was made, pointing out the disparities. All of these things are 1,000% inbounds, not out of bounds. They are 1,000% the responsibility being handled professionally by the senators on the Judiciary Committee, all of it. And yet they are being called racists. And once again, I remind you of exactly why Katanji Brown Jackson was chosen. It's not this difficult to understand. Truly, it's not. Not anymore. The, the identity politics game that the American left plays is done for a particular reason. It's not just to diversify and bring a, a, a wide-ranging uh, appeal to a board or a body that looks like America, where we have to have the percentages of America, the percentage of white America, the percentage of black America, percentage of, of Hispanic America, percentage of Pacific, Pacific Islander America, percentage of straight America, percentage of gay America, what percentage of trans America. This is what they do. It's not just for looks and appearance, though. It's for defense. I've made this point very clear, and it's, again, not that I've invented it, but it's something that I continue to have to remind people and have for for a number of years, really since Barack Obama ran, and then, of course, said he was going to fundamentally change America. And when he started to implement his socialist plans that were not going to be done in eight years, of course they weren't, because it's still going right now. The plan is still working. It is still a long game for them. But I told you back then that identity politics provides them with a certain level of defense that you cannot get anywhere else. And that defense is bigotry. Anybody who criticizes the black president is a racist. Therefore, we need to get black people nominated. Anybody who criticizes the female candidate, Hillary Clinton, is sexist. Even if you're criticizing not on her sex, you're a sexist because she's a woman and you're criticizing her. And it's the exact same reason why Joe Biden said he would pick, uh, when he ran for president, a vice president who was a black female. Now, if you criticize that person, you are both sexist and uh, racist. And it doesn't matter how ineffective they are. It doesn't matter how embarrassing they are. It doesn't matter how stupid they sound. doesn't matter. You criticize that person. You are a racist. I am here, standing here on the northern flank, on the eastern flank, talking about what we have in terms of the eastern flank and our NATO allies. I mean, it it just, this is the game. It doesn't matter that she's completely and wholly incompetent to do her job. You're a racist if you challenge it. And a sexist. And don't forget the sexist part. Well, here comes 
Joe Biden um, with the sudden and shocking retirement of Justice Breyer. Suddenly, we've got to find another one. We've got to find another liberal justice. How can we find one that they can't criticize, that they can't challenge, that they can't somehow manage to take one Democrat vote and turn it into a no vote and actually embarrassingly stop my nominee? Well, we have to provide them with the defense. And the defense is obviously in appearance and in in uh, uh, chromosomes. If we if we nominate somebody who's white, they can attack them and their record up one side or down the other, and we'll have nothing to say. But if we put somebody up there who's black, they attack. We scream racism. And it's even better if it's not a black male, but it's a black woman, because then we get to yell misogyny too. And it's working. Dark skin in America, 2022, and really for the last number of years, can't really pinpoint it, but dark skin in America is akin to a medieval coat of armor. It's like a knight, a jousting knight. Somebody fires an arrow at a knight in armor and ping, it just bounces right off. It's not going to cause any damage. Well, that's what having darker skin in America, thanks to identity politics being practiced by the racists in the Democrat Party, that's what they have created. You fire uh, an arrow of criticism at Barack Obama, bing, it bounces off because you're a racist. Therefore, your criticism has no credibility. Fire an arrow of criticism during confirmation hearings? At Ketanji Brown-Jackson, ping, it's going to bounce off because you racist, you just don't want to make history. You don't want the first black female to be on the Supreme Court because you hate women and you hate black people. Say it. This is the evil that they, that they, that they perpetrate upon us. I don't give a rat's behind if Ketanji Brown-Jackson is purple. I don't. I don't care if she's orange. Like Donald Trump's skin. She is being criticized, questioned, and and judged, which is what advice and consent is all about, based on her judicial record. It has nothing to do with her skin color, but it's been brought into play because it's the coat of armor. It is the armor that, that makes the wearer impervious to criticism. In fact, one might even call it black privilege. Because it's something that only a person of color can get away with. You criticize me, I attack you for being a bigot in one way or another. That's privilege. You know, there's a reason, and I've brought this up in the past too. And I'm gonna, I want to examine this in some depth today. I also have a great guest coming up too that I'll tell you about in a second. But um, I've talked about this a little bit in the past, too. And it's, it, it, do you not find it bizarre that when it comes to people who are public figures, whether they be entertainers or whether they be musicians, you know, actors, or whether they be um, uh, people in the media or elected officials, biracial individuals, people who are half black and half white, have one black parent, one brown parent, when is the last time you heard any one of them describe themselves as white? 
Uh, I'll wait. Because I think I'm going to be here a while. Because I can't think of any. I can't think of any who have ever described. Now, some just don't identify as either one. They will not say I'm black or I'm white. I'm biracial. But when they are forced to say one or the other, it is literally unanimous 100% of the time. And if that's not correct and somebody can prove it to me, I'll apologize. But 100% of the time, they say I'm black. Barack Obama is half black and half white. What does he say? I'm black. First black president. We see it all the time. Why do you think that is? If white privilege exists in this country, as we are told that it does, why wouldn't somebody who can claim some of that not say, I'm white? Give me the privilege. Give me all of the advantages. I'm biracial. I've got one black parent and one white parent, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a white person. Give me the benefits, please. I want white privilege, and I'm half white, so I'm entitled to it. I claim whiteness. When's the last time you heard of somebody, somebody who's biracial, and again, in a public figure, make such statements? I'll save you the trouble. The answer is never. Literally 100% of the time, those individuals, when asked what your race is, they say black. Why would someone choose to be underprivileged? to be oppressed, to be targeted, to be victimized. In a critical race theory-driven world, black people are indeed oppressed, they say. That's what critical race theory says. Regardless of the circumstances, they're oppressed and always will be, and white people are the oppressors. So biracial people have to say that one of their parents is an oppressor and the other one is oppressed. And they identify more with the oppressed version. And so they say, I'm black. Bring all of that scorn and all of that distrust upon me. That's what I want. Well, the answer is that it's exactly the opposite. There is privilege in this country right now to being a person of color. There's privilege in it. You can't be condemned and criticized. You can't be punished on the same scale in the same level. And I've got a story on that that Kersenow told us last night. I'll tell you in a minute or in a few minutes. Um, but but I, all of this is being brought up, of course, to point out what's going on in, in the, the Senate right now. In the Senate confirmation hearings, legitimate questions have been raised about the judicial philosophy, temperament, and record of a Supreme Court justice nominee. She is being considered for a lifetime appointment on the highest, most powerful court in the world. Looking at her record, judging it, questioning it, is 100% inbounds, and yet they are being told, sit down and shut up and vote yes for her, you racist, misogynist, Republican bastards. That's what you're hearing on CNN. That's what you're hearing on MSNBC. That's what you're seeing in the New York Post. That's what you're seeing everywhere. Not the New York Post, I beg your pardon, the New York Times. New York Post actually does a pretty fair job. But that's what the answer is. Katanji Brown-Jackson is, is, is lenient on child pornographers, sees that the child pornographers are victims, not the children being victims. You say that again, you racist. You better not say that again. She can't define what a woman is because she's not a biologist, and you find that odd. That's because you hate black women, and you don't want history to be made on this court. It's it's working to a to a 
to a T. It's uh, it's exactly what they intended. You are racist, you are misogynist if you question her for her philosophy and her record. And by the way, can somebody please tell me why it is so historic? We have had black people on the court and still do. We have had women on the court and still do. But because we haven't had black and woman together in the same person, suddenly it's a it's a miracle. Oh my goodness, it's a transcendent mo- for it's transcendent for who? Blacks? No, it's already been done. Women? No, it's already been done. How's it transcendent? The left is simply hysterical. And I mean that in both ways. In a state of hysteria and also really, really, really funny. Don't play that music on me yet, Johnny. I have not yet pledged allegiance to our flag. And I want to ask our patriots before we get into our first break to rise, face the flag that you have before you. If you don't have one, that's all right. You can imagine one. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our pledge. If you are a leftist who believes that we cannot question the judicial qualifications of somebody for the highest and most powerful court in the land simply because they happen to be female and happen to be a person of color, well, then you don't understand what that flag stands for anyway. Just go ahead and take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, who would, of course, call all of us racists if we question the record of Katanji Brown-Jackson. You take a knee while the rest of us do this. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, it is 9.23 now, so we will take this short time out. Uh, I want to hear from you at 216-901-0945, Either one of those numbers will work. Last night in Strongsville, I uh, uh, moderated a great event uh, from the Strongsville GOP called Save Our Schools, and I had people come up to me and saying, I love Mr. Scream taking you into the news. So, yeah, uh, take us into the break here, Mr. Scream. <laughs> Mrs. Scream, you too. All right, 926. It is always right on AM 1420, the answer. Always right, never left. Always right, not wrong. We do great, great work and uh, take great pains to make sure that we are accurate. But, of course, no one can say never wrong. That's just not a thing. Um, But appreciate you being here. Just real quick, I want to say thank you because I brought it up at the end of the segment. I want to say thank you to uh, Shannon Burns and uh, the team, the entire team at uh, uh, Strongsville GOP the largest GOP organization in the state. They uh, invited me to moderate the event last night, hosted, or excuse me, uh, uh, the panelists included uh, John Stover, Ohio Value Voters, Jim Renacci, gubernatorial candidate, Peter Kirsenow from the Civil Rights Commission. We talked about saving our schools and stopping us from becoming an indoctrination nation. It was a fantastic event. I want to thank all of the attendees. Um, it was terrific. I, I, I can't tell you how impressed I was with the great level of questions that we got from the attendees uh, and, of course, the tremendous insights offered by uh, the panelists. So thank you to everybody. Also, thank you to those who embraced capitalism. I asked everybody who believed in capitalism, capitalism to prove it. At an education-themed event, uh, I took uh, shirts from our website that have become some of the most popular ones to the um, uh, to the event. My friend Chris from Special Effects uh, uh, Printing in uh, in Wellington brought them out there, and we we created shirts based on my own verbal stumble from a, a, a couple of months ago, in which I said, 
I mistakenly said criminal race theory instead of critical race theory. And I thought to myself, wow, that's better. And it's more accurate. So we made banned criminal race theory shirts and took them last night. And people just swallow them up. Thank you to all of those who did. I told them all it's a blatant plug for capitalism because I want people to get that message, and I want people to share that message, and now they're going to wear that message. Uh, so thank you to everybody who did that. And if you want to p- uh, purchase your own, uh, go to the web store at alwayswrite.us, alwayswrite.us. Great, great event last night. Uh, Brian is in Cleveland. Hey, Brian, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Hey, Bob, good morning. You good took morning. part of what I was going to say during your monologue, but you said it more more eloquently than I could have. But uh, nevertheless, I was telling the screener about this justice. She, it's a job interview, right? So how do you actually sit down for a job interview, expect to get the job, when over 100 times you've said, I don't know, I can't answer that? Or you sit on a board of a uh, big money private uh, school or whatever it is in Washington, D.C., who's got a tuition greater than most household incomes, but yet you have no idea of what the what the uh, curriculum is going to be. Right. Or you go lean in on pedophiles and sexual predators because the left is pushing the agenda that pedophilia is a uh, sexual orientation. So she's pretty much got to walk on eggshells, watch what she says, as not to offend the alphabet soup mafia. And I'll let you have it from there, Bob. Thanks. Well, you, you did a great job. Thanks. I'm sorry I stole some of your thunder uh, with my monologue. Uh, of course, if I knew you were bringing thunder, I would have left some of that for you. Uh, but you made some great points anyway. And um, and the reason why she can do this, to your first point about it being a job interview, and she knows she's already got the job. The reality is they don't need one single Republican vote in order to uh, confirm her with the simple majority. Uh, that's just obviously the way that it, Harry Reid wanted it when he blew up the um, filibuster. And uh, and the reality is it's a simple majority now, and that's all it takes. And so she doesn't need one Republican. So she can look at all of them and say, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that. I don't know. And they can't stop her. That's the reason why. When you've already got the job and you go to the job interview, there's no pressure on you. Now, does she want to look better? Yeah, I'm sure she does. But um, I think Peter Kersenow put it best on the air Tuesday and last night from the stage. He said when he just testified before the Supreme Court or during the Supreme Court nominations of five different justices, he prepared for like two weeks trying to anticipate any and every question he could be asked and prepping the answers so he knew what to do. And he wasn't even a nominee. He was just asked to testify uh, about the judicial temperament based on his knowledge of the law of the individuals. So can you imagine being the nominee? How much preparation time they must have put in anticipating every question that could be asked. And for her to not have an answer anyway, it's embarrassing. And it's embarrassing because of how she sounds and how ill-prepared she is and because of her record, not because of the color of her skin or the chromosomes uh, that define her. 931. We're going to talk to Nino Vitale next. I forgot to tell you about our guest. Nino Vitale will be joining us on AM 1420 The Thanks for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. 
Got a lot of uh, important stuff to talk about with you this morning. None of it is important or more important than the leadership of this state. Mike DeWine uh, is is a train wreck. Uh, you know how I feel about the little Napoleonic tyrant. You know what I've been saying ever since March 15th-ish of 2020 when he started to destroy the state, uh, when he started and he appointed uh, a far-left uh, health director to help destroy the state. Um, I have wanted him removed. Uh, I could not wait back in 2020 for the year 2022. Well, now here we are, and he is still entrenched. And according to the polls, he is still favored to win re-election. And I've got a problem with that. A couple of guys are running to try to stop that. One is Jim Renacci. We talked to uh, uh, just a few days ago. The other is Joe Blystone. Joe Blystone is somebody we talked to about a week and a half ago. And Joe Blystone's in some trouble. I asked him about that trouble. I asked him about campaign finance law violations, and he said it was no big deal. And by the way, he's just a farmer. What does he know about campaign finance law? It was no no big deal. Well, according to um, the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, it is a big deal. A letter was sent to Joe Blystone saying, hey, you know those campaign finance violations? Yeah, you have to return $101,000 of questionable campaign contributions and possibly another 130000 so let's talk about the leadership of this state. Now, Nino Vitale is a state representative joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. Nino, good morning, sir. How are you? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So uh, I read the article. I actually knew about it before it hit the press. I received a copy of, uh, of that letter and uh, also a, 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 a confirmed PDF of the audit, 20 pages of questionable contributions uh, that went over the limit of cash, uh, cash allowance and so on and so forth. What was your reaction to what you saw uh, from uh, the Secretary of State to Joe Blystone? Well, um, so for transparency, I have also been hit with Ohio Election Commission so-called campaign violations. But, of course, that was because I was railing against uh, DeFure DeWine and um, <laughs> DeFure LaRose about the things that they do. I don't believe them to be uh, conservative for the people or Republicans. I believe they have ours next to their names with an L behind it for liberal um, so, and I'm going to call that out, even at my own expense, because I think the people of Ohio deserve to see that. Anyway, you know, LaRose decided to hit me with six campaign violations, five of which were tossed almost immediately, um, which is interesting because the guy who does my audits, they audit me three, four times a year and have done so for nine years and said um, that our campaign is one of the best ones, and he knew nothing about those violations. So, that being said, I'm not defending Joe Blystone. I'm not saying what he did was right or wrong. I'm just saying they can weaponize the Secretary of State's office or the Attorney General's office when they want to. And again, they and they can do it against their own anytime. That being said, I may have a unique perspective in that I am my own treasure. And people recommend you do not that in, in elected office, especially at the state level. But my response is the buck stops here. If something's wrong with my campaign or what I'm doing, I want to know about it, and I want to be held accountable for it. I'm an MBA. I've been in business for 30 years. I should be able to do this. So I, I went, and, and plus I wanted to understand it. It's like if I'm going to be a lawmaker in the state, I want to clearly understand how the laws work. And since I can't do that in every single area, I want to do it in as many areas as possible. And government managing government is one of the areas that can become very corrupt. So there are rules, such as person like me, person like Running for governor, Blystone Renacy cannot take money from um, corporations. Corporations, right? You, right? Okay, that's in the report. 
You can't do it. It's pretty simple. It's 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 just black and white. If you can't if you don't have a campaign that understands that, how are you going to manage a multi billion dollar state like the state of Ohio when you can't get something that's that small correct? If you receive a campaign contribution, for example, over one hundred dollars, you must report the name of the person and their employer. Now, we may say, well, I don't like that. Well, you know, there's lots of laws I don't like. We have way too many laws in the state, and they pass 10 more laws every single week in Columbus. But it is the law. So if you don't like it, maybe you ought not run for office or try to change it, get into office and change it. But until then, we kind of have to comply with things, unless it's completely morally objectable, like, you know, killing babies or something. I mean, I'm not going to comply with that one. So I fight that day in and day out, but I'm not going to go bomb a clinic. I'm going to talk to people about life and why I think that's wrong. So that being said, um, you know, these are simple black and white rules that we have to follow. I've been doing them for nine years. Um, and I mean, is this a, is this a, a, a tactic on the secretary of state to attack a candidate? Um, or, or did he really do things wrong? If we were talking about, and, and this may sound small, but in the world of running for governor, it's, it is small, um, or big to some people, but it's small. If we were talking about $5,000 or $2,500 on a governor campaign, that's kind of a minor note. But $100,000 is a lot of money, and that's a lot of contributions, considering the maximum right now is around 13000 So no one, that's another thing you have to know, no one's allowed to give more than 13000 from any individual to a governor or a senator or a house. You may not like that. You may like not. You may like it, but that's the rule. So know the law, follow it. Yeah, and uh, and they can't give more than one hundred dollars for each cash donation. And yet, those are some of the violations here that are that have been flagged essentially by the Secretary of State's audit. And you know, the the issue here again, the hundred and one thousand, as you just pointed out, it's not a two thousand or a five thousand dollar violation. We're talking about one hundred and one thousand, and we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens. I don't even know the total of uh, of uh, uh, over one hundred dollar cash donations or contributions that have been made, and. We didn't even talk about the 130,000, uh, Representative Vitale. According to the report, um, they found more than two dozen other irregularities, including missing information about the donors. Who are they? Where's this coming from? Missing or overly vague descriptions of expenditures. What are you spending the money on? Uh, and contributors, and this additional 130,000 in contributions that may need to be refunded because they may have come from corporations. All of these things that you're talking about, and, and, you know, his defense, as I said in the open, his defense is, look, I'm just a farmer. What do I know about this? P- ignorance has never been an excuse for violation of the law. And if you knew you were just a farmer who didn't understand how to run a campaign by the law, then you hire somebody who does. I understand you're your own yeah. treasurer, but it, and you, right. you may have the skills and the chops to do that. If he doesn't, which apparently he doesn't, then you get somebody who is trained to do it and not your wife, which is what he did. Yeah. Well, I know I'm it, I'm happy to be on a Cleveland radio show. I think you know I grew up in that area, West 65th in Detroit, there by Edgewood, and Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. Um, you go you go running down 71 through Brooklyn. What's going to happen? You know this. Everybody up there knows this. Uh, if you're if you're driving fast, you're going to get a ticket. And whether you claim you saw what the speed limit sign said or not, you're still going to get a ticket. You can't claim ignorance. It doesn't work. Um, and you know, we this is serious business. We we have a current governor who you I think aptly described, uh, who is 
who is an absolute train wreck for freedom and liberty and for jobs and everything else in this in this state. We we don't need an, another train wreck. And if if you do not have the skills to manage a couple of Basically, I would call them eight or ten basic roles that are not hard to understand in campaign finance, then maybe you're not ready for that type of a position. I don't know, but like I said, I get audited three to four times a year. I get a sheet usually. Um, the law says that they have to mail us, certified mail us something to the campaign address. I get those. I open them up. Sometimes there's three things. Sometimes there's 25 things in them that say, hey, look, these are questions we have. You need to comply by a certain date. Well, guess what I do? I go through them. I audit them. I look at them. If I made a mistake, there's an error, something got omitted, I fix them. And then I submit in writing every single point that they ask for. I respond to them in writing point by point by point. And I correct or explain the situation and then wait for them to respond again. This has been going on for nine years. And I just do it. And... Can you, mean, you, can you can you tell right. me something, you, you just, Representative Vitale? Do you know how large the uh, state of Ohio budget is that is managed by the governor? Well, that's a loaded question, and the reason that's a very loaded question is because we pass an operating budget every two years. The main okay. operating uh, main operating budget passes by constitution. It has to be passed. Uh, I can't remember if it's the end of June or the first month or first day of July, but it's right in that time period every two years the main operating budget has to be passed. Um, that is a multi-billion dollar budget. Okay, you can, you can stop there. Yeah, you can stop there. It, that, that's the only reason I okay. asked. I, I just wanted to hear you say that it was in the billions of dollars because it just begs this question. If Joe Blystone says, look, I'm just a farmer. How do, what do I know about campaign finance? And he cannot manage a campaign that is worth a few hundred thousand dollars in contributions. How is he going to be entrusted to sit in the governor's office and manage a multi-billion dollar state budget? Um, I'm just a farmer. I can't handle that. I, how did, I don't understand how that's supposed to make me feel any better than having, you know, I think, I think having an inept person in that seat is almost as bad as having a corrupt person in that seat. I need somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, when it comes to, to managing our funds and our resources, not to mention the issues that you pointed out about freedom and, 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 and liberty. Well, I'll add something to, to make that situation that I agree with even more complex. And this is going to shock you. So if you're not sitting down, you better sit down. If people are driving, they better pull over. There's corrupt people in government. <laughs> and even if Joe Blystone were to win, those corrupt people are not just the elected ones. The bureaucrats are sometimes the worst ones. And they've been in government for 10, 20, 30 years. And if you don't know how to give somebody a task and then keep an eye on them and audit them because you may not be able to trust them, look what happened to the President of the United States. I mean, there were people in D.C. who... who in my opinion, we're giving him bad information in all kinds of areas. And you have to be shrewd. I mean, this is the same thing in the business world that we have to deal with every day. You hire people, you don't know exactly what their skill sets are, especially in the finance world. Are they going to be good at gap accounting principles? Are they going to put your business in a bad spot? And then all of a sudden, you're getting audited by the state or the feds because of things that they see that you did wrong that you didn't know you did wrong. Ultimately, whose responsibility is that? It's the executive's responsibility to make sure the people are doing what they need to do. And there are so many people in government looking to take people out or get them in trouble. If you don't have the skills to say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure these people are doing these jobs and spot check them and audit them and make sure they're doing them right, 
you're going to get killed. You will get creamed. This is big, big-time money and big-time politics. We're talking with Ohio State Representative Nino Vitale. We're talking about the governor's race, talking about Joe Blystone in some serious trouble over campaign finance uh, law violations or potential violations. I want to talk about the um, the little uh, engine that couldn't. Uh, Mike DeWine destroyed this <laughs> okay. state. Uh, he destroyed the state, and, and, and I think he loved every second of the power that he got. He loved the attention. He loved uh, telling people where they can go, when they can go there, and so on and so forth. According to what I have been told, over 4,000 Ohio bars and restaurants closed in 2020 to never reopen again. Mo- thousands more closed during the time that he told them to close, then opened to 25% capacity and six feet apart, and nobody's allowed to stand up. In other words, nobody wanted to go in anyway. And they right. barely survived by the skin of their teeth, and two years later, they're still in the red trying to make up for that. Bars and restaurants were decimated by Mike DeWine's decisions. And yesterday, we learned... Nino Vitale, that the Ohio Restaurant Association endorsed Mike DeWine for re-election. I'm just going to ask you a reaction to that. Yeah, well, I posted about that and communicated about that this morning because that's just a huge shocker to me. Um, I remember the Sunday that uh, Der Fuhr DeWine came out with that edict um, by sword point. I was coming out of church and somebody said, hey, all the restaurants have to close tomorrow. And I said, by God, I'm going out to one of our local restaurants right now. And I don't usually do that on a Sunday. But um, it just was so shocking to me that he would do that. And um, that is 10% of the paychecks in the state of Ohio, 10%. And <laughs> the, the last thing I want to do as an elected person is deny someone their right to get their paycheck to work and feed their families. Uh, we've got enough people who won't work and are being you know, living on the dole of other people or free money or money that's not backed by gold standards anymore, all sorts of problems in this country. If we have people who want to show up to work, by God, God bless them, let them go. I mean, let, let's get them in there and get them working. We're talking 575,000 people who work in the restaurant industry. I mean, there's 11 million people, 11 and a half million people in the state of Ohio. That's a huge percentage of the people who, who are in this state. And it's not just your waiter or your waitress. It's the truck drivers who drive the straight trucks with the Gordon Food Service trucks and all those kind of things. Everybody was affected by that. How? I mean, talk about in the area of things that make you go, hmm. I mean, if that doesn't make you go, hmm, what's going on? That does not. These organizations, and unfortunately this is true of many of them in Columbus, they are bought and paid for by big donors, some of which aren't even in the state, in this case, it's the big restaurants who have the deep pockets who were able to weather this thing or get the big COVID cash. Is that the kind of country and state we want to live in? Because that's not what I want to do. You know, I, I completely concur. And um, I have been told by some people uh, who I will not identify because they asked for confidentiality that a close look at Governor DeWine's stock portfolio may reveal an inordinate number of of shares of the big box stores you're talking about right now 
because it's the mm-hmm. big box stores that were allowed to stay open, not the mom-and-pop stores. It's the big restaurant chains that were able to weather the closing, not the mom-and-pops. And as a matter of fact, they probably increased in value when the competition, meaning the small independent restaurants and bars that had to shut forever, are no longer there to compete for the dollars of the consumers. Uh, and I don't know that to be true. I'm just This is something that somebody told me to look into. Uh, if that information is publicly available, well, you, you, you better tell your listeners me. not to touch their radio right now because some some kind of flame may jump out of it with that truth bomb you're throwing out. <laughs> but it's interesting you bring that up because it's probably 16 months ago now. I decided to go look because we have another ethics organization uh, at the state level. This state uh, thing called JLEC, Joint Legislative Ethics Committee, and what we have to do with them is if you're on the ballot. You have to provide them all of your major assets and where they are contained and who and where they are contained at. So there is a significant amount that the public can look up if they know where to go with these JLEC files about the holdings of any elected official. And, and interestingly enough, the other thing that you're not bringing up is the large amount of medical and pharmaceutical holdings that Mike DeWine owns which, of course, has nothing to do with the last two years, I'm sure. It's just coincidence. And, and a lot of those were picked up when he was Senator Mike DeWine, where he also was part of passing a bill to create a legal shield where you can't sue a vaccine company if some harm were proven that came from the vaccine. And they're the only drug and, and one of the only uh, um, sectors of an industry that has this special carve-out where they're completely immune to all lawsuits if their product does harm. But yet here we are suing gun manufacturers when somebody uses a gun incorrectly, when 99.9% of the guns out there have never killed anybody, but we're suing them, but we can't sue a vaccine manufacturer. And Mike DeWine owns tons, tons, and tons of stock, maybe even more than the big box stores you mentioned. Purely coincidence. Purely coincidence. Purely coincidence. And it's all out there in the jail like Uh, Representative Nino Vitale, terrific information. I really appreciate it on both of those issues. Thank you so much for the work you do. We'll talk to you again, I hope. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much. That's Representative Vitale. I'm glad we got that in before the EAS test that is uh, imminent. So uh, I know that if that EAS test fired while Nino Vitale was talking, people would scream that Mike DeWine is trying to shut us up. No, it's a scheduled EAS test, and it is coming. We'll take this time out. Uh, let's see. How about um, let's ask Mr. Trump to take us into the break. Here. Random talking Trump doll. The First Amendment. Nobody loves it better than me. Nobody. Who uses it more than I do? We'll be back. I've been searching All right, nine fifty-eight, AM fourteen twenty. The answer. I'm told that we missed it just a little bit. That the um, EAS test, which was scheduled by the state, it's we have nothing to do with it. Uh, it did wipe out the last thirty seconds or sixty seconds ish of the interview. If you missed it and you wanted to hear the close, which wasn't remarkable, it was is more of just the normal normal uh, conversation. But if you missed it and you want to hear it, uh, the entire Nino Vitale interview will be posted on AlwaysRight.us probably within the next hour, uh, so you can check that out for yourself. And if you missed the conversations, Representative Vitale doesn't pull any punches. Uh, and by the way, he has been declared to be a rhino by uh, Joe Blystone. Uh, 
candidate Joe Blystone says Nino Vitale, who has endorsed Jim Renacci for uh, for governor, that makes him a rhino. I don't know anyone more conservative <laughs> than Nino Vitale in Ohio government. That doesn't that's not say he's the very best governor, uh, you know, uh, representative or the very best person in Ohio government. But I don't know anybody more conservative um, or passionate about that conservatism or articulating it or fighting for Ohioans' medical freedom, things that Joe Blystone says he is for as well, and I have no doubt that he is. Uh, Nino Vitale is lockstep, and yet he has been declared to be a rhino by, by Joe Blystone, who just doesn't like to hear that other people are not necessarily in his camp. And they all have to be branded as something, fake news or or not credible or rhinos or whatever. Uh, but there's the, reta- the, there's the reality of the situation. By the way, the Blystone campaign has released a letter essentially denying uh, the 20-page audit by the Secretary of State. Uh, saying that he doesn't have to return all of that money, that uh, that uh, the Secretary of State's office is wrong, which is fine. That's his responsibility, in fact, to reply, and he says it's not true. Um, I will simply say this as the matter plays itself out. It would be one hail, H-A-I-L, hail of a coincidence if the Secretary of State found the very exact same things that were alleged by Joe Blystone's former campaign manager, Sarah Chambers. She filed a complaint with the Elections Board, 51 or 58 pages long, alleging the very same campaign finance law violations that the Secretary of State came back and found as well. So if both of those institutions were wrong, one of whom was on Team Blystone, the other one is the Secretary of State, and Joe Blystone is right, that would be that would be one remarkable situation. So we'll see how it plays out. That's all we can do. Take a time out now for news at the top of the hour. Dr. Everett Piper next on AM 1420, The Answer. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. With Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Always right, never left. Always right, not wrong. Thanks for joining us eight minutes after 10 o'clock on AM 1420, The Answer. It's a Thursday, 24th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord, 2022. And I think you know what that means at this time of day. It means it's time to welcome our good friend, Dr. Everett Piper, back to our program. He is... uh, a phenomenal writer for the Washington Times. You got to read his weekly column at the Washington Times online. He is the best-selling author of two terrific books. He is a past university president, a podcast radio host, and a candidate for office as county commissioner in his native Oklahoma. Dr. Piper, good to have you back. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Bob. Again, thanks for always, uh, always. having me on. I appreciate it. Always my pleasure to do so. I, you're going to get fired up today. I know you are uh, because there's some, there are some just crazy things that are happening. Um, we, I, I emceed a, a town hall last night uh, in which we had uh, three terrific panelists talking about saving our schools from uh, becoming an, uh, you know, helping us become an indoctrination nation. And uh, you know, we were talking uh, among other things about um, not just critical race theory, but critical gender theory or comprehensive sex, sexual education. Um, 
And I pointed out the obvious that, you know, the T in the abbreviation LGBT seems to have taken over in this country now. And we saw it come to, uh, I shouldn't say it came to a head here. I mean, it's, it's quote unquote just sports, but it became very nationally prominent when Leah Thompson, who just a short while ago was Will Tom, uh, Thomas rather, uh, just a short while ago was, uh, uh, swimming as I think the 461st rated swimmer in, uh, in the country for the University of Pennsylvania men's team just a short while ago, suddenly became the national champion, uh, racing as Leah Thomas on the women's team. And there are a whole lot of problems with that, which you have discussed, uh, Dr. Piper. But what, what I want to discuss here is not necessarily just the trans movement that has allowed this to happen, but the, the First Amendment violations that are being uh, carried out against us, or the First First Amendment violations, uh, I think that we are all in danger of, of suffering if you speak out against this, if you challenge this. One of the swimmers in the national championships who finished 17th and therefore was kept out of the finals, which was reserved for the top 16, finally snapped and said, this is ridiculous, this is wrong. I had my spot stolen from me by a biological man. And Dr. Piper, she can't say that. You speak out against anything like this, particularly the T and the LGBTQ, you are going to be canceled, and canceled she was by the online service Twitter. Your thoughts, sir? Well, as you well know, and as your listeners know, this isn't the only canceling of a contrary view. Uh, Babylon B was canceled from Twitter this week simply for stating a biological fact that a man is a male, not a female, and they canceled Babylon B for making that point. Mm-hmm. They, I still think I, I think there's a glimmer of hope here, Bob, and I'll try to respond to your question or your point in a positive way. I mean, this is like this is crazy. This is lunacy. This is delusional. We all know that. But here's the key: this movement, the trans movement in particular is misogynistic. It's anti-woman. It's the exact opposite of classical feminism. You can't be a feminist and deny the fact of the female. It's impossible. If women aren't real, then you can't be pro-woman. There's nothing more insulting to an individual than to erase them from existence. I've used the analogy of blackfacing on your show before. We're offended, we're appalled when a white person dresses up in exaggerated costume and makeup and appropriates, culturally appropriates, something that's not his, blackness. Well, we should have the same outrage when a male culturally appropriates something that's not his, being a female. When he steals a woman's shower bathroom for sport, her identity and her dignity, here's the positive. Here's the glimmer of hope. I think even uh, the rational Democrat, the honest, classical liberal, recognizes something is desperately wrong here. This is anti-woman. This is anti-female. And if we have a few people of courage and boldness, I think of Joshua in the Old Testament, be strong and courageous. If we have some people that have strength and courage that step forward into this mess and lead on behalf of women, this is our opportunity to be pro-woman. This is our opportunity to say that as a classical conservative, I'm the feminist in the room because I'm defending the identity 
and the dignity of a female. This is an opportunity for us to lead, and we dare not let it go. This is a crisis, and as Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, we have a cultural crisis right now where women are being erased, and we can step into this crisis, not let it go to waste, and shine a light on the lie. Dr. Piper, um, the folks over at The Federalist uh, appear to agree with you. Uh, There's a headline that I just linked to my webpage, alwayswrite.us, this morning. The trans lobby doesn't just want to erase women's sports. It wants to erase women. Very similar to what you have been saying. And, in fact, there's a line that I just want to read quickly. The left's destruction of women's athletics is only a small part of the campaign to subjugate women and girls by legally and culturally erasing their existence. The trans goal is a society and legal system in which the subjective claims of self-identification are what determine who is a woman. And I want you to respond to that, Dr. Piper, also with this uh, nugget uh, uh, uncovered during the Senate confirmation hearings this week when Judge... uh, Brown Jackson, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who is uh, nominated for the Supreme Court, was asked to define what a woman is. And she said she couldn't because she's not a biologist. And I think that's a very important phrasing. She couldn't define what a woman was because she's not a biologist. Does that not indicate that her belief is that womanhood is determined by biology and not by psychology? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's a blatant lie. Any woman that looks someone else in the face and says, I can't tell you what a woman is, is lying. Or she's completely insane and delusional. One or the other. You, when somebody asks you, what's a man? I think, Bob, you can answer that question. You can answer it very clearly and concisely and confidently. You don't have to be a biologist to answer the question. Now, I do think she betrays something that she didn't intend to, and that's what you're suggesting. She references biology as part and parcel of what it means to be a woman. So it's not psychology. She didn't say, I'm not a psychologist. She said, I'm not a biologist. So she is referencing, perhaps unintentionally so, that biology defines who you are, that you can't deny the physical reality. You can't be a Gnostic. You can't deny the material. You can't deny the reality. You can't craft and contrive your identity out of thin air. I mean, there's a great book out there right now written by a Catholic woman. Her name is Noelle Mering, M-E-R-I-N-G. And the title of the book is Awake, Not Woke. And she tackles this entire worldview and basically summarizes it as this. The woke movement is an attack on words, on definition, on meaning. They tear everything down to the point where it means nothing so that nothingness is what we are, and then we reconstruct our identity out of thin air into something. She makes this point. If you are nothing, in other words, excuse me, if you have to claim that you're nothing in order to be something, then this is a vicious circle. You're sawing off a branch upon which you sit, and your identity will always be subject to power. Your identity will never be real. And... Dr. Piper, while we're on this issue, I just want to I want to go down to the Florida situation uh, for a couple of reasons. And we all know the Florida situation is that there is a bill pending that Governor Santos wants to get passed and sign 
that the left has incorrectly dubbed the don't say gay bill. Uh, and all that means, because you and I have discussed it, is, is that they're not talking about gay and they're not talking about straight. They're just not talking about sex when we're referring to kid kindergartners through third graders. Well, in response to that, Dr. Piper, Apparently, the Disney Corporation is so outraged, and of course, we know Disney World is in Orlando. They are so outraged at what the left is calling the Don't Say Gay Bill, they have decided to jam gay down the throats of young children, and they have inserted a gay kiss in the upcoming Disney film Lightyear, about Buzz Lightyear from the uh, Toy Story movies. So there's going to be a gay kiss in it now, and they're doing so specifically in response to responsible adults in Florida saying, children, K through 3? should not be sexualized, should not be taught about sex, straightness, or gayness, or anything else. This has been the Disney reaction. And, and again, I go back to the positive uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, the silver lining. We are the ones, conservatives, those that believe in conserving reality, conserving truth, rather than bowing the knee to these false gods of opinions and subjectivity and feelings, Gnosticism, if you will, special knowledge that I know better than my own biology and my own reality. I can look in the mirror and deny what I see and be something totally different than that. We are the ones who are defending the dignity of the woman. I've already mentioned that, but we're also the ones that are defending the innocence of children. We can win this one. The positive of this story is if we start fighting for women and if we start fighting for children, and we're fighting against a lot of crap. But let's remember, we're also fighting for goodness, and that should be our message. We are for women. We are pro-woman. We are pro the innocence of children. We believe in protecting the identity and the dignity of a woman, and we believe in protecting the innocence of children, and we will stand in the gap and stop these people who are insulting the human being to the point where they want to indoctrinate children in their sexual ideology and they want to degrade women and claim they don't even exist. Dr. Pepper, I, I salute and respect your attempt to be positive here and to try to find the good in, in certain situations and how we can most positively react. But um, the difficulty comes from when conservative people, conserving the culture, as you're talking about, aren't allowed to be heard. And again, sticking with the Disney story, story number two, um, Disney is driving conservatives into the closet. If they dare try to speak about this in a rational, responsible, respectable manner, not, not degrading anyone and certainly not getting into altercations, but if they try to do so, they are essentially ostracized and forced to leave the company. Uh, that's why they are being driven into the proverbial closet uh, right now. So how do conservatives do it, particularly if they are in places and, and and that would be, I think, the whole of education today, all of academia, the Disney Corporation, woke corporations at the at the corporate level. You know, with the American Express, we've seen that's this story. And that it, it just seems though, if you are working in a place that has gone woke, and that means you must embrace these things, and you have different ideas and ideals, you are forced into that proverbial closet. So, how do we fight back from there? Well, if you're not willing to lose, then you're never going to win. That's a paradox, a Piper paradox of leadership, if you will. will. I learned that while I was a college president. You've got to be willing to lose if you're ever going to win. And what I mean by that, you've got to step into the fight and be willing to lose by waving the right banner. And if if you lose waving that righteous banner, so be it. Be willing to go down fighting. 
I mean, this is the nature of the civil rights movement. This is the nature of the suffrage movement. Every good movement that you can refer to in American history that has elevated the dignity of the human being started with somebody stepping into the mess, risking their job, risking their lives in some situations, risking their freedom, being thrown in jail, for saying something that was contrary to the power base, to the ruling class, saying this is wrong. Black people are human beings. I will not sit at the back of the bus. Was that popular? Was there a risk? Absolutely. Could you lose in doing so? Absolutely. But we need to have the courage and the intestinal fortitude to step forward like other civil rights leaders that have preceded us have done and do what's right and be willing to suffer for doing so. That when the tide turns. That's a, that's a big ask. Uh, of people to throw their careers away in order to be able to do this. That's a big ask. And you know what? That's why we sometimes use the, the, the phrase, uh, some, some he- uh, not all heroes wear capes, because it does. It takes a hero- heroic person to be willing to put themselves on the line in such a way. And they're, they're working. They're trying, by the way, at Disney. The, you know, the reason we found this is a, there was a, an open letter, an anonymous open letter published to the Disney company and about the Disney company from these conservatives saying, over the last few weeks, we have watched as our leadership has expressed their condemnation for laws and policies we support. We have watched as our colleagues convinced that no one in the company could possibly disagree with them and grow increasingly aggressive in their demands. They insist that the Walt Disney Company take a long stance, strong stance rather, on not only this issue but other legislation and openly advocate for the punishment of employees who disagree with them. Uh, so this letter circulated and got uh, you know a, a number of other people to circulate it, but I don't think they're putting their names on it because they just can't afford what you just pointed out, and that is to lose in the course of fighting this battle. They want it to become you know aware. They want people to know, but uh, they can't put their names to it and argue it publicly. That's why they're in that closet. Dr. Piper, uh, let's take a time out, and then we're going to come back and talk about the censorship of Tulsi Gabbard. And I know you're excited and, and concerned about this one because you wrote about it in the Washington Times. That's next. Always write AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1025 now, continuing with Dr. Everett Piper, as we do each and every Thursday. All right, Dr. Piper, anybody who knows me and listens to me knows that I represent Citizens for Free Speech, a nonprofit organization that's based in Mesa, Arizona, that is fighting for the First Amendment and fighting to stop people from being censored, suppressed, canceled, or forced into speech against their will. Uh, you write about that this week in the Washington Times when you note that this week our country's ruling class doubled down in its efforts to silence anyone who dares dissent from their approved narrative. So, Dr. Piper, who is the ruling class? Who is the they, and what are they doing to silence, most recently, Tulsi Gabbard? Well, I get that language from a book that I just picked up. It's been around for 10, 12 years. It's titled The Ruling Class. It's written by Angelo Cotavella, and uh, Rush Limbaugh actually writes the foreword to that book. Cotavella argues that the ruling class is the Democrat Party, the progressives, but also Republicans who want to be popular, want to be well-liked, want to be part of the clique in Washington, D.C. They believe they're smarter than us. They believe that we are deplorable. They believe that the average American can't think his way out of a paper bag. They believe that we can't be trusted, not only to have our own guns, but to have our own ideas. And they, they, excuse me, therefore, are going to tell us everything. It's hierarchical government rather than covenantal government. I've referred to that before on your show in reference to Oz Guinness. 
And whether you agree with Tulsi Gabbard's politics or not, and I disagree with a lot of what she stands for, I believe she should have the freedom to do something. And that is criticize Joe Biden's handling of the Russian-Ukrainian war. That's all she did. For all intents and purposes, all she said was indistinguishable from anything and everything the leaders of her own party have said a thousand times over when they've criticized people like George Bush or Ronald Reagan or Lyndon B. Johnson, for that matter. I mean, what she said is a essential quote of the same types of things that people like John Kerry said in criticizing Vietnam. But yet she's being canceled. She's being silenced. Her ideas are being declared verboten by the ruling class, by Twitter and Google and Facebook, those people that think they should control everything that you and I read, everything that you and I say, everything that you and I do. They're telling us what to wear in our face when we cannot go to church. They're telling us how, to, how far apart we should stand at the cashier. And now they're telling us that we can't even listen to a Democrat candidate for the presidency in the last election criticize Joe Biden for his incompetent handling of this Russian-Ukrainian conflict. Yeah, because uh, to criticize Joe Biden, of course, is to criticize uh, you know the, the the entirety of the American left, the green movement, uh, the, you know uh, everything that Joe Biden is doing with respect to energy in this country, all tied to the Eastern European conflict, and we're not allowed to condemn anything that he does. And and the the problem, I guess, Doctor Piper, that I have when you talk about the ruling class is how did they get that power? How did they become the ruling class, and why do we defer as a nation? You don't, I don't, but why do we defer as a nation to them? Why do we allow them to bully us into corners? Well, again, I'm going to go back to what we talked about before. It only happens when we allow it to happen. And by being silent and elevating safety over freedom. How many times in the last couple of years since COVID have you heard people wish you be safe? I don't want to hear anybody telling me to be safe. I don't want to hear that anymore. I value freedom. I value liberty over safety. I've said in my second book, uh, Grow Up, life isn't safe, but good. The goodness of liberty, the goodness of freedom, the goodness of human dignity, the goodness of autonomy, the goodness of being my own man and not having you or anybody else tell me how to live, what to wear, and how to shop, that is a good thing that needs to be defeated, excuse me, needs to be defended, and we need to defeat those who challenge it by having the courage to step into the gap and just say no. Yes, there is going to be a risk, but if enough of us do it and support those with courage that lead the charge, I believe it's still winnable. But we're on the cusp. We literally are on the cusp of losing exactly what it is that we're talking about right now, and that is the freedom to be an American. I think the words that are most important there in your last response is, if there are enough of us, if there are enough of us doing this, we can defeat it. It's very hard to do. It takes a lot of courage uh, to do this on your own. But if there are enough of us, we can have an impact. And the question is, how do we find those others? How do we coordinate? How do we communicate? How do we, how do we find the safety in numbers that you're talking about, knowing we can be effective if we form a block? And, and, and the, the problem, of course, becomes, and I hate to again be negative here, is they stop us from coordinating and forming a block by taking us off of the social platforms where we can unite. How do I find somebody who feels like I do and who's willing to act the way I want to act, who's willing to take the stand that I want to take? How do we find them and, 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 and you know, form the numbers that we need to protect ourselves while achieving what we want to achieve? 
Real quick answer. I know I have to be brief. Um, and that is forget Facebook, forget Twitter, forget the social media, forget the oligarchs, forget the ruling class. Do it anyway. You've got Daily Wire. You've got other platforms out there that we can use. You have the, the physical reality of going to the courthouse in mass and supporting women because they have the right to have their own sport. Sooner or later, they're going to have to attend to us. They can't ignore us forever. Dr. Everett Piper, terrific analysis. As always, Dr. Piper, we appreciate you very much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you, sir. Okay, 1031, time out. We're going to come back. We have an open half hour now for your phone calls. We've been very busy. We're going to talk to Jack Windsor at 1110 this morning about some of the Ohio issues. Uh, he is all over those. Uh, but I want to hear from you. 216-901-0945, and leave your voice messages for me on the webpage, alwayswrite.us. Click the sound off button, record your voice, send it my way. We'll play it on the radio and respond to it right here on Always Right. Indeed, now 1038. Appreciate you being with us on Always Right. Really, really enjoyed last night's event in Strongsville. If you were there uh, and you'd like to react to it, some of what you heard on Save Our Schools from either Kersenow or Renacy or uh, John Stover, we'd love to hear from you. going to be posting pictures and videos of that event on alwayswrite.us throughout the day today, so keep checking back for that. Also, if you missed the interview with Nino Vitale, uh, in the first hour, you will have that uh, posted on the uh, webpage coming up very, very shortly as well. I want to get to the phones at 216-901-0945, but I also need to follow up on what I started this morning about the confirmation hearings with Katanji Brown-Jackson and how what the left is doing here is just so par for the leftist course, and that is any condemnation or criticism of a decision that Ketanji Brown-Jackson has ever made, even when it comes to something as repulsive and repugnant as uh, light sentencing on child pornographers, and that's exactly what she has done. If you criticize any of those things, it has nothing to do with her decisions. It has everything to do with how she looks. You just don't want this this African-American woman on the court because she's black, even though there are blacks on the court. And you don't want her because she's a woman, even though there's women on the court. You just don't like that combination. You're racist, you're sexist, you're, you're misogynistic. Josh Hawley did some extraordinary work in discussing this, this these issues with Ketanji Brown-Jackson, which, of course, has made him public enemy number one on the left. I think it's worth listening to some of the information that is being discussed. You notice, by the way, when you hear this, none of it is about keg parties, ex-boyfriends, uh, drinking, uh, um, college years, uh, social media po- No personal attacks about somebody's history when they were young. None of the stuff that the left did to the uh, Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. This is all about her record, all about what she did on the bench. Well, let's keep talking about, about this case. You also said to, to this individual who is an adult, tried as an adult, 18 years old, you also said to him, besides saying that you thought his victims were his peers, you also said there's no reason to think that you are a pedophile. 
And then you went on to say, again, that's another reason why you weren't going to give him, you're only going to give him three months because you would have judged that he wasn't a pedophile. And then you said, and this is something I'd, I, I really need your help understanding, then you apologized to him. And I, I just have to tell you, I can't quite figure this out. You said to him, this is a truly difficult situation. I appreciate that your family's in the audience. I feel so sorry for them and for you and for the anguish this has caused all of you. I feel terrible about the collateral consequences of this conviction. Well, let's keep talking about, about this. I feel terrible for you. I feel really, really badly about the collateral damage because of this conviction. This is a child pornography user uh, and apparently distributor. Um, the, the sentencing guidelines were 10 years. She gave them three months and then apologized for doing so. And then you go on to say sex offenders are truly shunned in our society. I'm just trying to figure out, Judge, is he the victim here or are the victims the victims? You're saying that you are you're apologizing to him. You're saying you're sorry for the anguish this has caused him. She's upset that sex offenders are shunned and shamed in our society. Can you tell me a decent society in which child pornographers are not shunned and not shamed? Does such a, a society exist that can call itself civil and responsible in which child pornographers and predators are welcomed with open arms rather than being shunned and shamed by society when the most innocent and defenseless among us, our children, are forced to engage in horrific acts with one another by adults Ruining their, their 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 lives literally forever. They're going to be in psychological trauma forever. And studies and science shows this to be the case. Should we be welcoming those who enable and support that with open arms and not shunning them? These are legitimate questions for Katanji Brown Jackson because she's going to cast one of nine votes on countless numbers of issues over the course of the next 40 years or however long it is she chooses to stay with this lifetime appointment. She's going to be casting votes that reflect the will of this society as it pertains to our laws and as it pertains to the Constitution. I think it's fair to explore these things. The left calls what Josh Hawley is doing now in criticizing this. The left calls this racism. There was a victim impact statement in this case. It didn't get read into the record, but it was there. I've described the, the videos that we have. You say earlier in the case, you talk about how heinous these crimes are, and you describe them to your credit. You describe how heinous it is to your credit, and yet... Here you are giving him three months and apologizing to him and saying you feel sorry for the anguish it's caused him and also saying you think that sex offenders are truly shunned in our society. There was a victim in... I mean, just think about this. She knows the victim's feelings on this. That's why there was a victim impact statement, and yet she treats the perpetrator like the victim. Is this the right judicial temperament to sit on the Supreme Court? It's a fair question. And anybody who doesn't think it's a fair question and that this is just harassing a woman because she's a woman and harassing a person of color because she's a person of color, I, I, find a way to square that. So just just talk about that. Help me understand. I mean, is, is he a victim? Is that your view here? Is that why you said this? Is that what you meant by Senator, it? Senator, I, 
I, again, don't have the entire record. I remember in that particular case, I considered it to be unusual, in part for the reasons that I described. I remember in that case that defense counsel was arguing for probation, in part because he argued that here we had a very young man, just graduated from high school. He presented all of his diplomas and certificates and the things that he had done and argued, consistent with what I was seeing in the record, that this particular defendant had gotten into this in a way that was, I thought, inconsistent with some of the other cases that I had seen. Part of what a judge is doing... I'm going to stop here and just point out the insanity in what this woman just said. She said he had a defense lawyer who didn't want him to be sentenced very long and he should have probation. That's news. Wow, that doesn't happen. There's never been a defense attorney that has tried to get his his client off and out of a jail sentence or a prison sentence before. Well, now we've got to really consider what to do here. The defense attorney said, you know, he's really young and he shouldn't be sentenced to prison, put him on probation. Well, that was enough for me. I mean, think about what she is saying here. She is more empathetic to the criminals who enable child pornography to exist, to be viewed, to be trafficked, and thus to create a demand for more mass production of it. She is more concerned about the users and the creators and the distributors than the victims in those horrific pornographic materials, which are the children who are forced to do this. It's it's really remarkable when you look at this this condemnation. Let me move on from that just for a second and get to this other element that we talked about a little bit with Dr. Piper. Does this judge who is potentially a justice on the Supreme Court who was chosen for this nomination specifically because she's a woman? The boss, Joe Biden, made that very clear. His nominee to replace Breyer was going to be a woman, and it was going to be a black woman. That's it. Everybody else, you are excused from the room. You are not allowed to be considered. It must be a woman. And yet, when asked what she is, when asked what a woman is... Uh, Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? Not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. The of the word- not in this context. I'm not a biologist. What 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 context is there? What, is there is a, is a woman a different definition in one context from another? I I don't think there's multiple contexts here. It's just a simple question. What is a woman? I can't do it. I'm not a biologist. And as I said to Dr. Piper this morning, and as I said to the crowd in Strongsville last night, those words are very, very telling. Because what Ketanji Brown-Jackson is saying here is that the definition of being a woman does indeed, or is indeed rooted in, biology. Not state of mind. Not psychology. She didn't say, I don't know how to define what a woman is because I'm not a psychologist, which would indicate that she thinks that a woman is whatever somebody feels like they are in their head.
She said, I'm not a biologist, and I can't identify what a woman is. I can't define what a woman is. The word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition. Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the law, and I decide. So I'm not... What the hell are you talking about? Nobody asked what you do as a judge. She asked to find the word woman. That's it. And you refuse to do so. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. How can she sit on a case? How can she sit on uh, um, on the Supreme Court and hear a case on women's rights? On anything having to do with women's rights, if she doesn't know who they are or what they are? Or how to define them. Because she's not a biologist. Now, mind you, because I am asking these questions and pointing out the insanity, that makes me a racist. Because she happens to be a person of color. And as a black woman, any criticism that is aimed at her becomes racist. Not with her decisions, not with her answers. It's simply how she looks that matters. And, oh, by the way, I'm saying she because she is a woman. This issue has been brought up time and time again, and the left fails uh, the question every single time they are asked about what is a woman, because they are all about this trans movement, and they don't want to define what a woman is, and they always decline, or they say, I don't know how to say it. There's, There's a variety of things that make a woman a woman. Okay, what are they? Tell me what makes a woman a woman. They never have an answer. If you're interested in what Merriam Webster thinks, The dictionary definition in Merriam-Webster of a woman is, quote, an adult female person. It doesn't do a ton of good here, right? I mean, okay, because then you're probably left to wonder what. Well, what is a female? Oh, well, okay. A woman is an adult female person. We can agree on that. But what is a female? Maybe that's where the confusion lies. Let's look at the definition of female according to Merriam-Webster. A person bearing two X chromosomes in the cell nuclei and normally having a vagina, a uterus, and ovaries and developing at puberty a relatively rounded body and enlarged breasts and retaining a beardless face, semicolon, a girl or woman. Well, how about that? The definition of woman is not what somebody feels like inside their head. Not what somebody identifies, because they may like to wear different clothing. The definition of woman, an adult female person, takes us to the definition of female, a person bearing two X chromosomes, having a vagina, a uterus, and ovaries. Now, some may say, well, wait a minute, whoa, Bob, it said normally having a vagina, a uterus, and ovaries. So therefore, that means a woman could not have those things. Therefore, the dictionary definition is is that, yes, a trans woman is a woman. A guy who wears lipstick and a wig can call and says he feels like a woman is, you see, because it says normally. I shouldn't have to be elementary here in explaining this. 
But the reason they stick the word normally in there is because not all women have a uterus. After hysterectomies, uteruses are removed or uteri are removed. Not every woman has the full reproductive capability of all women given various points in their life or various points in their health. Not every woman has working ovaries. Not every woman is fertile. So that's the reason it says normally having. You don't cease becoming a woman if you don't have a uterus anymore. But I can tell you this. You don't get to be called a woman when you don't have a uterus because the reason you don't have a uterus is because you have testes. And because you are a male with XY chromosomes. So Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who had weeks and weeks to prepare for the questions that were going to be coming uh, from the uh, uh, Senate giving advice and consent on the Judiciary Committee, didn't even have the foresight to decide what some of these things were. Because she knows full well she doesn't have to. She's a lock for confirmation because this is historic. And the Democrats are never going to allow anything to derail the first black woman from sitting on that bench, regardless of how ridiculously inane their answers might be. 1053. Mr. Scream, take us in. When you have completed Mr. Scream? Is he off the j- is he is he in the bathroom? Where is he? Right back. Welcome back to Always Right with Bob Frantz. All right, all right, all right. On AM 1420, The Answer. You know, her record, unfortunately, I think is far outside the mainstream. And, and, and there's a real difference. You played clips of the Democrats sliming Republican nominees, going personal, going into the gutter, going after their character. If you look at the hearing the last two days, the questions that Republicans focused on were her record, and in particular her judicial record. If you look at her record as a federal judge in criminal cases, and particularly cases concerning child pornography, over and over and over again she gives incredibly lenient sentences. In every single case where she had discretion in a child pornography case, she gave dramatically lower sentences than the sentencing guidelines provide for and then the prosecution. Yeah, apparently that's racist. Apparently, giving dramatically lower sentences to child sex predators, uh, that's racist. If you point that out, rather. If you point that out, then that's racist. Uh, let's go to uh, Westlake. Charlie, you're on AM 1420 The Answer. Go ahead. Hey, Bob. Thanks for taking hey, the Charlie. call. Um, the event was great. You guys all did well. My friend John Stover, Shannon, everybody... He he came up with three or four things that would save Washington or fix Washington. The fourth, it has to be ending lobbying. That's got it. Somehow he got outlawed. It's it's ruining the country. But I'm talking about this Jackson Brown uh, judge. Um, that's a pun. She she's always been. She's I guess she was Obama's uh, 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 sentencing person, and she's always consistently been lenient on child pornography. And at first they go, well, she's going to get in, no problem. But this is a good way for uh, the Republican senators to show how out of touch these Democrats are. They're for child pornography. They're, they want us to parse it out and say uh, so much pornography is okay and so much isn't. It's ridiculous. Uh, I think it's a good chance for us to show how out of touch they are. 
Yeah, and they're doing a good job of that. She's going to get confirmed. You're right. But uh, everybody should know, and thanks for the call, Charlie. Everybody should know her feelings on child pornographers, that they deserve sympathy. And the reason why she said, did you, did, you, did everybody hear this? The reason why she has taken the, the kind of the approach that she has is because it's so much easier to access child pornography now than it was 25 years ago because of the Internet. Because back then... You had to go out of your way to obtain kitty porn, a lot more difficult to do, so your intention was a lot more nefarious than it is now where you can obtain it with a few clicks of your mouse on the keyboard or on the, or on the keyboard. And so since it's easier to get thousands of images to watch kitty porn now, well, you might not have thought about it as much, and so uh, your enjoyment of kitty porn, sh- porn shouldn't be punished as much as it would have been otherwise. Think of the insanity of that. Because it's easier to commit the crime, the punishment should be less severe? Is that really what we're doing now? So in other words, if somebody steals uh, $250,000 worth of diamonds and jewelry from a jewelry store that has cameras and guards, they get one punishment. But if somebody steals from a jewelry store that doesn't have cameras up, and doesn't have guards up, it's just so easy to do. It's so tempting because there's no way I can get caught. Look how easy this is. They get a lighter sentence because it was just too doggone tempting. If it's easier to commit the crime, you do less time. That seems to be the judicial philosophy of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Now, they may not be able to keep her from the court, but that ought to be the definition That ought to be the description, that ought to be the judicial temperament and philosophy that is attached to her for the entirety of her time on that high court. All right, let's get news. Top of the hour, we'll come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about Ohio politics, what's going on in the governor's race. Jack Windsor from the Ohio Press Network will join us on AM 1420 The Answer. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number three underway. Always right on AM 1420, The Answer. Appreciate you being with us. It is a Thursday, the 24th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Great conversations earlier this morning with Nino Vitale, who talked a lot about the Joe Blystone campaign and about the campaign finance problems that he is having. Talked also with, uh, uh, or about me, uh, about uh, Mike DeWine with Nino uh, Vitale. 
and uh, the bizarre nature of the Ohio Restaurant Association endorsement of him for re-election after he pretty much destroyed the bar and restaurant industry in the state of Ohio. Then we had a great conversation last hour with Dr. Everett Piper. Uh, the Nino Vitale interview is already up and posted and ready for you. If you missed it, it's at uh, a, uh, alwayswrite.us, rather, alwayswrite.us, and we'll have the uh, uh, Dr. Everett Piper interview up there ASAP as well. Right now, I want to welcome our good friend Jack Windsor back to the program. Jack Windsor is our State House correspondent for AM 1420, The Answer. He is also the founder and editor-in-chief and president of the Ohio Press Network. Jack Windsor, good morning. Good to have you back, sir. Bob, thank you for choosing me. It's an honor to be here. Always a pleasure to chat with you, Jack. You uh, have been following uh, this campaign, this gubernatorial race, rather, I guess I should say, as closely as anybody, and it's uh, it's gotten ugly at times. And uh, you've got a lot of coverage on the Ohio Press Network about some of the events that have taken place here. And before we get into more on the uh, allegations of campaign finance violations by uh, by the Blystone campaign made by the Secretary, Secretary of State's office, a lot of people have been wondering what really happened Saturday at the Ohio Beef Expo and the little uh, brief encounter between uh, Joe Blystone, a challenger, and the reigning champion, incumbent Governor Mike DeWine. Yeah, so uh, based on what I've gathered, what I uh, heard from Joe Blystone, what I saw on two separate videos, and uh, of course I did call uh, Governor DeWine's campaign and uh, they deferred comment or uh, refused comment. Um, but, you know, here's the bottom line. Joe Blystone was at the Beef Expo and uh, the public address announcer indicated that the governor was in the building. And so, According to Joe, he got over to the governor as quickly as he could and said to him something along the lines of, hey, why won't you debate me? And the governor said, look, my positions are very clear. Ohioans know where I stand. And Blystone um, allegedly rebutted that and said, well, okay, that's fine, but you owe Ohioans answers to questions that I want to ask and to discuss uh, on stage. And allegedly, DeWine then said, well, let's let's move over here and talk. And Blystone said, no, no, we're good here. Are you a coward? Do you not want to talk in front of everyone else? Um, and then you can see in the video that Mike DeWine does grab Joe Blystone's shoulder and, and leans in to say something. It's at that moment that uh, Joe Blystone alleges that Mike DeWine said, I'm going to kick your ass. Um, Joe Blystone posted about it soon after. Uh, now, do I think the governor, if he said that, was talking about, you know, a physical altercation? Probably not. Probably trash talking like, you know, some high school football player um, saying, look, come election time, I'm going to I'm going to smash you. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that grabbed some headlines over the weekend. Yeah, it, it, it really did. And, you know, I want to give Joe Blystone credit here. Joe Blystone and I don't see eye to eye on a few things, and he was very critical of me because he didn't like the way I uh, questioned uh, Jim Renacci about his allegation over the you know the vote uh, from 2016 on the Millennial Amendment. You, by the way, did a tremendous job of digging into all of that information. So he's been very critical of me, and that's fine. I'm a big boy. I can take criticism. But I want to praise Joe Blystone because he's right. Mike DeWine does owe the people of Ohio a debate. He absolutely does. Uh, and whether it was a one-on-one or a one-on-two, in it, or, you know, it essentially would be two challengers against uh, the incumbent uh, Mike DeWine, he absolutely owes that. For him to say, Jack, um, everybody in Ohio knows my positions, 
that, and that, and therefore I don't have to debate. That would essentially take campaigning to, I just have to print out here all, all of my positions and the issues, submit them to the newspapers and the TV, let them read them to people and say, okay, who do you want based on this stated, uh, uh, um, uh, statement on, 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 on their, on their positions and issues. Debates have to happen because there are questions that they may not anticipate, and I want an explanation why is this your position, Governor DeWine? Why is this your position on that issue, Governor DeWine? Why did you do this? What would you do if this particular piece of legislation comes up? The idea that this guy is so, and I'm really just disgusted by Mike DeWine, as you know, that he is so full of himself, so narcissistic, that he can think, people know me already, I don't have to answer to you or anybody else, is is just infuriating and insulting as, as, a, as a citizen of Ohio. Yeah, so, you know, it is, it's a strategic move, right? In, in his mind, he has more money at his back and call than Grenacy or Blystone, and so uh, he can send out the mailers, he can get endorsements from county officials all around the state and, uh, you know, just massage that position that he has until it's time to pull the lever. So I get that it's strategic, but I also think that it's arrogant and I think it's misleading. One of the other comments that his campaign made, uh, because him saying that to Blystone was a reiteration of what his spokesperson said when he declined to debate Blystone and Renacy and Hood uh, at the gubernatorial debate. He said, you know, they know my position. I, I talk to reporters all the time, and I said, no, you don't, actually. You you pick and choose reporters the same way that Amy Acton uh, picked and chose businesses in 2020. So I, I believe it's arrogant, and Mike DeWine doesn't do well with curveballs. I wrote an article about that yesterday. Hitting, hitting a fastball is easy. Hitting a curveball is hard. Um, and, you know, when things get hard, your character is revealed. And I think, uh, you know, his character was revealed in his interaction with Joe Blystone, with his body language and what he did. I think his character has been revealed in his inability to get on stage and thinks he's in the pole position and he's just going to ride it out because he would rather win than be transparent and handle hard questions from Ohio. Well, you know, Jack Windsor of the Ohio Free Press, or, I, I used to write for uh, uh, the Toledo Free Press about 20 years ago, and I every time I want to say Ohio Press Network, the word press gets in my head, and I used to talk about the Free Press, so please accept my apologies. Uh, you no know, worries. I love what you do with the Ohio, with the Ohio Press Network. You know that, but it just it's a it's a muscle memory thing there. Jack, um, let's stay on to wine then for a second before I go back to the Blystone situation and the Ohio, and the uh, campaign finance issues. Um, Four thousand Ohio restaurants, I'm told, closed forever in 2020. They were never ever able to recover from being shut down by Amy Acton, vis a vis Mike Dewine. Um, Thousands more barely survived and came back when they were allowed to reopen. Of course, we know the phased reopening and 25% capacity and all the other restrictions that made them lose even more money while they were open than when they were forced to be closed. Two years later, so many of them are still in the red and just trying to stay alive. He decimated the bar and restaurant industry with his decisions on COVID, which were completely unfounded and, quite frankly, unconstitutional. But, Jack, now the Ohio Restaurant Association has, quote, in their own release, enthusiastically endorsed Mike DeWine mm-hmm. and John Husted for re-election. What do you take? What do you make of that? So I don't own a restaurant, but I've owned several businesses over my life. And uh, I, I compare that to the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. And I'm probably going to really bristle some people right here. And that's okay. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I look at the Ohio Restaurant Association the same way that I look at um, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. Usually there's some sort of figurehead, you know, political figure 
there um, who has a hand in the till somewhere and is getting paid really well, and it behooves that person to stay in good communication and relationship with the powers that be in Columbus. So part of what I take from, you know, um, the Ohio Restaurant Association endorsing the wine in Houston is looking at it and seeing what they think is the inevitable, which is that these two are going to be reelected. So, you know, we need to kind of, you know, stand around, hold hands and sing kumbaya with them. Um, but, you know, Bob, I listened to John Barker yesterday on another radio show in Columbus. He's the CEO and president of the Ohio Restaurant Association. And I was really taken back by his message. I mean, he had it down. He's got a lot of political veneer to what he said. Uh, but you're right. Somewhere between 3,100 and 4,000 restaurants closed, and they're closed forever. And, you know, he kind of just let that roll off his back and said, you know, restaurants close anyway. It's a tough business. And what we learned or what, what we took from this pandemic was a couple of things. Um, you know, you, you had to be nimble. You, you basically had to figure things out. And so the better restaurants survived. We came out with business models that are probably more profitable because more restaurants are doing, you know, to, to go orders now, whereas before they wouldn't have. So it's really been, you know, good for the industry and we compared Ohio to places like New York and California and said, wow, you know, they really had it terrible there. Um, but when the, uh, you know, broadcaster said, wait a minute, 3,100 restaurants still closed. And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, we get that. But, you know, we worked hand in hand with the governor and, and we feel like that we opened up and, you know, did things as well here as, as any place. Um, and then, you know, kind of the standard line of all Republicans and, and people on the DeWine Houston train right now was, well, we didn't know then what we do know now, which is not only ignorant, it's just, it's completely false. Uh, we knew back in, March and April of 2020, what we know now, people just weren't listening back then. So I was really taken back by, you know, what he said. And he said, you know, we, our board voted on this and 65% of our members, um, you know, are in this small to mid-sized restaurant grouping. And, you know, they largely support uh, what DeWine and Houston are doing. Um, I don't know that I buy that, Bob. Um, I know the 3,100 no. restaurants probably don't. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I don't. I don't buy it for one second. I, I what I do buy is this board of directors is probably again in a relationship with Mike Dewine. And if you read the release, they kind of talk about you know the long history that Mike and Fran have of doing this and supporting that and so on and so forth. And they're willing to put their own personal needs and agenda. And if I I was talking to one restaurant owner that I will not identify literally this morning who told me that. He knows some of the board of directors, and he knows what their ambitions are when they step away from what they are doing, and that it involves uh, the blessing of Mike DeWine, that there are things behind the scenes that are that are going on here, and they don't represent the membership of the Ohio Restaurant Association, that this board of directors represents themselves here. And, and you know, something I talked to Nino about, uh, Vitaly about, uh, Jack, and he said uh, he completely concurs. Uh, this restaurant owner I spoke with, and I told Nino this, said, if you take a look, if you're able to, if this is uh, able to become public, at the uh, stock portfolio of one Michael DeWine, what you are going to find probably is a whole lot of shares of things like big box stores, the ones that benefited. Big box stores that were allowed to stay open by Mike DeWine while the mom-and-pop shops had to shut down because COVID only impacted and only went into the stores of independent business owners, not of the big boxes. COVID was banned and side of those things as you know um 
Uh, but they were allowed to stay open. And then, of course, the big chain restaurants, which, of course, could absorb the losses of, of, of being closed for a few months. Uh, the small businesses that were competing with those large chain restaurants, the small mom-and-pop uh, 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 restaurants, being gone is good for business, for the big chains. So, you know, there may be all kinds of reasons. And I can't prove anything. This is all speculative but I'm speculating that Mike DeWine probably has some pretty good reasons why he made the decisions he did, and there are pretty good reasons why the Restaurant Association uh, Board of Directors, not members, but the Board of Directors, did what they did. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think you're spot on. I know I looked at DeWine's portfolio. It's been maybe a year and a half ago now. I was looking more at uh, companies like Pfizer, and you know he was almost a million dollars into some of the um, you know, medical companies and companies like Abbott. Um, and it would be interesting if I could go back and, and just see what the present value is of those holdings. Um, but the other thing I'll point to, uh, the Ohio Supreme Court has decided to hear a case involving Highland Tavern. And uh, Highland Tavern is a, a, a restaurant that uh, stood up to DeWine's mandates uh, from day one. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the Ohio Supreme Court says on on that matter. Um, and I have not had a chance to read their filing or, um, or their case yet, but um, that'll that'll be some interesting follow-on to this discussion, I think, in the days and weeks ahead. Jack Windsor is our guest. Jack is the uh, editor-in-chief and the founder of the Ohio Press Network. Jack, a headline yesterday on the site, Ohio gubernatorial candidate Joe Blystone ordered to return over $100,000 in campaign contributions, clarify or return an additional 133000 and address more than two dozen campaign filing irregularities. Um, as I looked at that 20-page PDF, uh, outlining those things. I compared it somewhat to the 58 page, um, a complaint that was filed with the Ohio Elections Commission by his former campaign manager, Sarah Chambers. And the similarities are remarkable. Um, what she alleged is what the Secretary of State found. And Joe Blystone has issued, his campaign has issued a response, uh, late yesterday that said, nuh-uh, didn't do it. They're wrong. Well, what's your takeaway here? So a couple of things. I want to correct something in our story. Originally, it, it, the letter was dated March 4th. It indicated that the Blystone campaign had until the 25th to respond. It was actually 21 days after the receipt of that letter. So uh, after talking with the Secretary of State's office, it looks like uh, Blystone's campaign has until about the 31st of March. Um, Secretary of State though, did, did point out that something that I think is really interesting and uh, uh, two things. Uh, number one, their job, meaning the Secretary of State, their, their office, is to help candidates and campaigns stay compliant. And he said, you know, so if on March 31st, not everything is, you know, completely answered or, or whatever, he's like, it's not like we have a SWAT team from the Secretary of State's office that goes out and raids file cabinets. Um, you know, our goal would be to help them clarify their filings uh, and to make sure that they're compliant. Um, you know, I think that there was some, I, I took a look at Blystone campaign's response, um, and I can appreciate where they're coming from. Um, but being someone who read the, the 20 page letter and took it at its word, you know, there are about three or four points in that letter where it reads, it's necessary to refund. Um, and so I asked the Secretary of State's office about that, and they said, well, yep, if, if they cannot clarify, right, then of course it would be a violation and then they would be compelled to, or they would be encouraged to return those funds. Um, but they want to give them a chance to, to clarify. But the way that it looks is that they had about $99,000 in cash contributions. 
over $100, and you can't do that. Um, cash contributions over $100 are, are not legal uh, in the state of Ohio. You can't take donations from corporations. There's about 1100 there. And then there's um, about $133,000 in contributions that are, that are unclear. And so the Secretary of State's office said, hey, if these did come from corporations, then it would be necessary to refund those contributions. And a couple other things in that report, uh, you know, they need to clarify certain campaign expenditures um, and make sure that the documentation, whether it's a canceled check or a receipt is provided, there's like $40,000 there. Uh, and then another 17000 in expenditures that don't tie back to bank statements that were provided. So um, I know that Blystone's campaign took exception to one of the news outlets reporting this, um, and certainly we want to make sure in the news business that we get it right. But based on the letter, um, it indicated that money needed to be returned and things needed to be clarified, and, and so that's what we reported, and, and we stand by that. But I will say this. It's not uncommon for campaigns to get this type of letter. It's not uncommon for them to be examined and, and for the Secretary of State to write a letter and say, hey, you need to either return these funds or clarify why you shouldn't return these funds. And that's what is going to happen. Now, if it gets to the Ohio Election Commission and, you know, there's, they have to go before the Ohio Election Commission, then the Ohio Election Commission might not be as forgiving than the Secretary of State because those two, those two offices handle, you know, different responsibilities within the state government. The, uh, the response from the Blystone campaign is one thing. The response from Blystone supporters is another. Uh, Frank LaRose, as you know, is a rhino. Frank LaRose can't be trusted. Frank, Frank LaRose is just doing everything he can to stop the people's champion here, Joe Blystone, from, from taking over. He's part of the swampy establishment, DeWine camp, and that's the reason why they wrote this very fraudulent and phony letter of accusations of these, uh, of these, uh, uh, uh violations. Um, how far do you think that's going to take them? You know, <laughs> so this bleeds over into commentary, and, and you know, I, here's where I'm at with that. It, it it gets very old hearing that you know there's everything. Everybody's in the swamp. Everybody's a rhino, and everybody's out to get me. The problem with that is that we've seen a lot of it nationally and statewide for both Democrats and Republicans. There are there are power hungry people who want to silence the opposition. I get that, um, but sometimes you, you got to you've got to appreciate the nuance. You know, you mentioned earlier, I read an article about the, the Maloney Amendment and some of the feedback I had was, oh, well, that was a really nice article with, you know, chock full of word, word salad, right? And it's like, yeah. well, no, it's it's nuance. And that's the problem, Bob, is we have to make sure, <laughs> hey, I want, I want somebody that if there's an, a campaign law, that they make sure the candidates follow it. I also want to make sure that they're being fair. And I think, you know, if we let the due process play out, then we'll find out. And, you know, this might, might end up being that not a big deal for Blystone, or it might end up being a big deal for Blystone. But that's why we live in a country in a state that should be ruled by law and process, not by, you know, emotion. Well, just remember, though, it's not his fault because... Have we had some issues in the campaign? Absolutely. We're, we're just... Uh, I'm a farmer. What the heck did I know about running a campaign? Well, there you go. As long as you're, as long as you're ignorant of the law, you don't have to follow that law. If you're just a farmer and you don't know how to run a campaign, so just, just to clarify that. Jack Windsor, Ohio Press Network, terrific job as always, my friend. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. All right, God bless you, Bob. Eleven twenty nine. We are coming up on news. Who should take us into news? Mister Scream or Random Talking Trump Dog? Random Talking Trump Dog. Basically, all I've done is keep my promise. 
There you go. News next. Your call's after. the darkness of tyranny always right with bob france on am 1420 the answer that's right a pair of kings i'll take that hand at any poker table and i will uh i will work my way through to victory i'll take that every single time might not you might have aces but i'm gonna make sure you don't think uh you don't think i don't all right um that's my way of saying saying thank you, by the way, to the Floor King and to Mark King for sponsoring our number three of Always Right. I want to go back to the phones now, uh, get a few more phone calls before we're done today. Lisa is in Cleveland. Thank you for your patience, Lisa. Good morning, and go right ahead. Yes, good morning. Um, I just received email that I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Oz. Sure, um, I sure, yeah. Email that he was a you know candidate for the you know United States, um, and. Uh, I'm just reading what I received, and I just couldn't believe it. Biden fired him, removed him from position that he was applying to be in the, for the government. He was like a health counselor and something. And Mehmet Oz, you know him. Yeah. He, he, he had a show on the television, and he's working for Cleveland Clinic. Now he, you know, he United States candidate. Now he fired him. Also, Herschel Walker, two people, Biden fired. Are we going to live on a revenge from this person for how long? Well, I'll tell you this, uh, and, I, and I do know what you're talking about, and I thank you so much for the phone call. Uh, the way the story goes, the White House has asked two members of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition to resign from their posts or be fired from them. Uh, both of them are Trump appointees. The first one, as she just said, is Dr. Mehmet Oz, who is running for the Senate, at least for now in the state of Pennsylvania. There are words and rumors that he's going to drop out and return back to his uh, his TV show and his career. Uh, but he's running, apparently, for now, as a Republican in Pennsylvania for the Senate and former uh, uh, football star Herschel Walker. Both of them are Republicans. And uh, both of them are running for the Senate, and Joe Biden has, or the White House, has asked them to submit their resignations or face termination from the Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition Council. Now, I don't really know what that council does. I don't know if it's largely ceremonial or if they actually have any uh, impact on things, but it's, it does sound and seem to be just a little bit petty. On behalf of President Biden, I am writing to request your resignation as a member of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition, wrote Gautam Raghavan, an assistant to Joe Biden. Please submit your resignation to me by the close of business today. Should we not receive your resignation, your position with the council will be terminated effective 6 p.m. tonight. They were appointed in 2018 by then-President Trump. Under the Biden administration's policies, federal candidates are not allowed to serve on presidential boards. So this is a Biden policy. It's not a traditional rule. It's just under the Biden policy. This is according to what I'm reading now. Uh, Federal candidates, and they are both candidates for the Senate, are not allowed to serve on presidential boards. So, again, does it need to be done? No. Is it petty? Yes. Is it expected? Yes. These are conservative individuals, particularly Herschel Walker. Dr. Oz, I have never really gotten a firm grasp of how conservative he was. I know he's running as a Republican. I don't have anything against him. 
I didn't champion him either. Herschel Walker, though, is a very strong conservative, and uh, the idea that Biden would do everything he could to kind of disassociate himself from him is not surprising to me in the least. So that's just kind of just that's as much of the story that I know. And I thank you for the phone call. Listen, I want to get this in too because I teased this at the top of the show. And I didn't get a chance to really go there when I talked about race, and we talked about Katanji Brown-Jackson and the accusations of racism for questioning her. And I talked about a little bit about what it means to be black in America versus what it means to be white in America, privilege, and so, so, forth, so on and so forth. Um, if you don't think that there is something to black privilege in America, then you have not been paying attention to the Harvard story. You have not been paying attention to countless examples of this in public schools. Here's the latest. In what Peter Kirstenau told us this story last night in Strongsville at the event. In the state of Washington, the uh, Lakewood, Washington, to be precise, the Clover Park School District voted last week three to two to amend the student discipline policy. The student discipline policy will no longer call for specific punishments for various rules infractions. The punishments will now be on a sliding scale depending on what your race is. I didn't misspeak. I didn't stutter. I didn't, I didn't get that wrong. The new policy is allegedly, quote, culturally responsive, end quote, and said to be in line with the state law passed in 2021 that requires districts to, quote, identify or develop and periodically update governance training programs that align with cultural competency, diversity, equity, and inclusion standards for school director governance. In other words, the punishments and the number of people, the number of students, rather, who are punished for breaking the rules has to reflect the racial makeup. So, if, just for the sake of this discussion, if there are more black students breaking rules that require suspension or other harsher punishments, then there are white kids breaking rules that require suspensions. That is not equitable. That's not equity. It needs to be even. That's what equity is all about. So we can do one of two things here. We can start punishing more white kids for even if they're not breaking the rules and suspend them anyway to bring it in line with equity. Or we can go lighter on the uh, uh, students of color for rules that they may break so that they don't get suspended. That's literally what this is all about. So what they have now decided to do is practice racism. And they're going to punish based on what race you are. If you are the right color, you can get away with a lot more stuff than you can if you are the wrong color. This is what Kirsten I was, was apoplectic about this last night in Strongsville when he talked about this. The students of color experience disproportionate rates of exclusionary discipline and is correlated with the negative school climate. Schools, uh, students feeling disconnected from their school, reduced graduation rates, and increased involvement with the juvenile justice department. And the best way to make all of that better is to not punish them for breaking rules. Because, you know, that's how it's going to be in society. They're not going to be punished for breaking laws. Yes, this is insane. But yes, this is Biden's America. And that's why, why don't you let me take the music out here, uh, John? Let's go, Thanks to my guests. Thanks to the crew. Thanks to you for listening. Where did I want more? I'm not done. Let's go, Brandon. That's got to be a longer loop. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.